Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Chukat this morning. And does anybody remember what a chok is? A chok is a law. What kind of law? It's different from other kinds of laws, which is why it's called a chok. Here's a ritual law. Define ritual law. Rituals or ceremonies we go through in order to accomplish some purpose. Uh, ceremonies we go through in order to accomplish some purpose. Or to bring us closer to God. To bring us closer to God. So, so many of the chukim are ritually based. Isn't it that we that some of them don't make sense to us, but we do them because God said to do them as opposed to mishpatim? What defines a chok yeah. is that it doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> That's what defines a chok. That you, one would not get there if one were to build a just and equitable society, one would not get to a chok logically. Right? So, um, a chok... sacrifice in the morning. I'm sorry? Do, like doing a sacrifice in the morning or killing three bulls. It doesn't in and of itself. Right. Um, with sacrifice, in some ways, there might be a little bit more of a connection between I should have what happens to me happen, but it isn't because it's going to happen to this animal. And there, I mean, so there's a little bit more there. Um, but certainly I need three bowls and you need to do it today at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because it's Sukkot, right, is closer to the understanding of uh, a chok, yes. So a chok is a law that is we are given. Uh, traditionally, it's understood that this is God's desire. God wants it, so we do it. So our response to keeping chukim is that we are fulfilling something that the divine wants from us, period. And so it is pointless to ask about a chok, why? Completely pointless. And when the rabbis want to lift up how pointless it is to ask about Chukim, they turn to chapter 19, verse 1, as their their example par excellence of the fact that Chukim make absolutely no sense. Okay, so let's let's start at 19:1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, "This is the ritual law that the Lord has commanded: instruct the Israelite people to bring you a red cow without blemish, in which there is no defect." and on which no yoke has been laid. You should give it to Eleazar the priest. It should be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent to meet him. The cow shall be burned in, in his sight. Its hide, flesh, and blood shall be burned, its dung included. And the priest shall take clear wood hyssop and crimson stuff and throw them into the fire consuming the cow. The priest shall wash his garments and bathe his body in water. After that, the priest may re-enter the camp, but he shall be impure until evening. He who performed the burning shall also wash his garments in water, bathe his body in water, and be impure until evening. A man who is pure shall gather up the ashes of the cow and deposit them outside the camp in a pure place to be kept for water of lustration for the Israelite community. It is for purification. He who gathers up the ashes 
of the cow shall also wash his clothes and be impure until evening. This, this go, go ahead. Well, I was this yeah. shall be the permanent law for the Israelites and for the strangers who reside among them. Alright, so we need a para aduma, a red cow. Uh, and the rabbis say completely red. There can't be one hair on the animal that is not red. Um, and it's done no work, right? It's without. It has to be, of course, without blemish. Uh, and it's never done any work. And this will be offered as a holocaust. And the ashes of the holocaust is what goes into water and becomes a purification ritual for the Israelites from... Purification from what? Look at the next sentence. <laughs> Death. Purification from contamination by contact with the dead. Which is as bad as it gets. gets, Right? We've had many conversations in here about Tum'ah, about impurity, and that there is a theory that I happen to subscribe to um, that all all defilement, all ritual impurity has to do with some kind of contact with death. So when you have contact with a corpse, it's the ultimate in in impurity, right? It communicates the highest level of dysregulation. Like you are irregular um, for the longest amount of time having been around a dead body. The para aduma, the ashes of the para aduma are used to to bring one back into regularity having been uh, contaminated by contact with death. And I mean ritual contamination in this sense. So t- tell me what's interesting about this para aduma. First of all, okay, a red cow, whatever. Obviously it's a chok. Why a red cow? Red is blood. Red, you know, like we can. Rare. Like, hmm, it's rare. It's definitely rare, right? These are um, recessive genes that go into. It's like a blue-eyed person in some parts of the world. If it is, if it is death that makes us impure, then red is the color of blood and makes us filled with life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Blood makes us filled with life. However, blood is contaminating. So it's a little trickier than that, right? So menstrual blood, childbirth, right? All that blood is is make, renders one ritually impure. And you can't eat meat uh, traditionally unless the blood is drained. And we can't eat the blood. Right, because right. it's life. So the so blood is a very complicated, I mean, it's another PhD topic that I would be interested in. Um, it's a very complicated topic, biblically, right? Blood is both contaminating and the blood of the sacrifices is what ritually purifies the space. So there's this, there's this blood is a very powerful substance. I wouldn't even say symbol. Literally for them, that substance had a lot of power blood so in this case the tell me what's in, well, tell me what looks odd about paradoxical about the para aduma and all of this business that goes on with it what if you're a Jewish butcher what if you're a Jewish butcher yeah. you can't you can't eat the blood you can touch it okay. you can touch it but, but you can't impure, eat it no we don't have purity and impurity anymore because there is no temple um, and only the blood of a sacrifice would purify. Yes. So who was commanded to do this ritual? The priest who touched a dead person? What about family members? Anybody. So how many red heifers are there out there? Yeah, right. So (laughs) presumably we're dealing with this population, right? And if you have a great big heifer, 
there's a lot of ashes. And a little ash goes in water, right? So it presumably goes along, one heifer goes a long way. Um, so the, the cow has to be burned, right? It has to be burned up. So the person who performs the burning has to wash their garments and bathe their body in water. They are unclean until evening. What's that about? The person who takes the ashes becomes unclean. What did you say? If it's a folk, which means it's unexplainable and it's just something which is there, why are we discussing it? If it has no meaning, why are we why not? So we're Jews. This is what we do. So the person who carries out the ashes is going to be rendered impure. What is the cow used for again? Purification. Purification. What's going on that the person who burns it and the person who carries the ashes is rendered immediately impure? It's kind of interesting. Right? All right, so for me, this is, I mean, it's one of the things that the rabbis point to, that this is what is, makes the, the para ajumaso so inexplicable, right? It's, it's used for purification, and yet the person who handles it and touches it is immediately rendered impure and needs the rites of purification, right? So it sounds a little like, it sounds a little crazy, right? Um, or, or, or internally inconsistent. However, if you think about it in terms of ADHD medication, it begins to make some sense. If I gave all y'all... ADHD medication, it would zip you up, right? It would, you'd be like, whoa, right? I am so paying attention. Like, I'm like, there. If you give me ADHD medication, right, I'm settled and focused. So, because if you don't have ADD, ADD medication works differently on you than if you have it. If you have it, right, it, it changes in the way that we want to if we're talking about attending, I don't take it because it changes other things as well, like my ability to think crazy, connected, right, thoughts. But but if we're talking about wanting to focus and let's say make it through a, the SATs, right, then then the medication has the desired change that it wouldn't do to someone else. And so that seems to be, in a way, the rationale, not rationale, but the 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 way that the para aduma works. If you are contaminated because you have been in contact with a corpse, the ashes will purify you from that if you're in a state of ritual purification already being regular pure, you're ritually pure it does the opposite yeah is it the case that uh, traditionally that this really does make sense but that our brains as human beings are not capable of understanding it or, or I don't think so oh, okay. no I, I don't think anywhere that it's uh, that it's suggested that if our brains were different, it would make sense. Um, but I think if our brains were different, a lot more of these things would make sense because we wouldn't have the Western biases that we do as we approach so these not, texts. But isn't there a sense, again, traditionally, that it would make sense to God? Or, or is it intentional that God is giving us these there, things that don't make sense? My favorite interpretation is that, and it's actually by Larry Kushner, who says that his wife 
woke up very pregnant. She, well, she was very pregnant before she went to sleep. She, she woke up in the night having already been very pregnant, and she, she said, wow, what I wouldn't give for a Hershey bar with almonds. And he, like, leapt out of bed and pulled on. It was in Massachusetts in the winter, and he pulled on his boots, and he pulled on his parka, and he pulled on his hat, and there was a blizzard. And, like, everything was closed, and so where is he going to go? And he remembers a gas station that's got one of those push-button, you know, candy machines and he drives you know th- half an hour to like and get back to get and, and take off all his stuff and get in bed and hand her this candy bar and she was just like you know overjoyed and and he talks about because it made him happy to do what the beloved wanted and that made him happier than doing what he wanted or what would have made him ha- what he thought would make him happy which is staying in a warm bed even though it was not necessarily what he wanted for his ego, his ego was out of it. And so he had the full and incredible joy of giving to the beloved what the beloved wants. So there's the joy of service? So I think it's beyond service. It's yes, was he serving her? Yes. He was fulfilling a desire of the beloved. And that was transformative for him Right, that he felt better about that th- that he had just done than anything in like years, right? That, that, and that to me is the idea of, traditionally of chok, that we do it because the beloved capital B desires it of us, and we are responding to that desire of the beloved and fulfilling it for the beloved, just because there's a craving for anchovies, right? That you know that it doesn't make sense, but but the beloved wants it. Okay. Like most of the time, I don't understand why somebody wants what they want. <laughs> right? Like it doesn't make sense to me because I, I, it's not me. I don't want it. Why somebody wants to watch a basketball playoff. <laughs> I don't know. Right? But if the beloved wants it, you put it on the television and you make some hot dogs and, you know, what? right? It's We often don't understand why the other person wants what they want. But what we know is if they want it, Right, there's an experience of either fulfilling it if we can or not. It's not even that we're fulfilling their desire, we're fulfilling our need for their existence. Say more. When I do for my family, it's not, I just want them to survive, I want them to be. It's that craving of and that fulfillment of having them exist in my life. In your life, not at all, though, right? Because it would be a little chutzpah to say, well, we're doing it for God because we want God to exist. That would be chutzpah for us. Now, to say we want to do it for God because we want God to exist in our lives in a certain way, that makes sense, right? My daughter has needs that I fulfill because she is the beloved. She does not need them to survive. Right. Most of them she does not need to survive. We have that conversation frequently, Um, right? But I do it because she wants it. It It will make her happy. And and that's that's the motivation behind. Doesn't that make your life easier? Okay, and it makes my life a lot easier until it doesn't, right? Until fulfilling enough of that, right, becomes its own pattern, and then you have other problems. And you, my friend, are so teed up for those problems, you have absolutely no idea. We talk about this as though God has got this comes from God, but yet we also talk about the fact that it's written by people. And so I think it's very beautiful what you've explained to us that whoever wrote this was thinking in such a way. Right. So that they imagine this is what yeah. Yeah. God wants. 
right, let's. I, I redefined hook. Yeah, how did I do that? What happened? Well, because it is your, your hope is an act that you do for your beloved. It may not make sense. Right. But that increases the meaning of it greatly to me. Um, and and for some of us, it still shows up in our lives. Um, for me, it's around kashrut, right? I don't not eat pork because there's anything wrong with pigs. I don't not eat shellfish because there's something wrong with, right? I, it's a hook. And that's one of the chukim that I keep. Right, and I keep it out of love, right? Out of this is a positive way I can say yes to. And and one of my teachers, Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg, had a beautiful um, line where she said that um, it's not just responding to the beloved, like in, in terms of thinking of it as God or the divine, but or I mean it can be. What if we also think of it as you know responding in love to the tradition? And for me. Um, Chukim, like you know, like any kind of kashrut. Lighting Shabbos candles is really a chok if you think about it. Like why, why light two little things and say Shabbos started, right? Like that doesn't make, that doesn't logically follow. So um, those chukim for me are saying yes to the tradition, right? Is a loving response to the tradition to say I'm in and yes, and it's a response of love and affirmation. Right, not because it makes sense or it's a good thing. As crazy as it is, right? Exactly right. As crazy as it is, right? And and anyone who loves us, like, could say that when they fulfill something we want, right? As crazy as it is, I'm going to do this because I love Amy, right? All right. Twenty, chapter twenty. We're going to skip to. The Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zin on the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh, at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The community was without water, and they joined against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished at the instance of the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There's not even water to drink. All right, are we all clear with chapter 20? Yes, some of you are furrowed brows. We just moved ahead. We jumped to chapter 20, verse 1. We're up to verse 6. So the people of Israel come, and now we're going to get a modifier. All of the community arrive at Midbartzin. So the rabbis say, if you're saying the children of Israel, the people of Israel came to Midbartzin, why do you need to add There's never a repetition for no purpose, God forbid. So what does mean? Why add and they answer because this is now the entire people that are going to what? That are going to enter the promised land. Everyone who's died, everyone who's going to die has died. And now, the whole people, everyone who's going to enter, because remember we've been talking about this for a while, haven't we? About they were on their way, they were almost there, then and then 40 years, and right now we get that everyone who was going to die has died, and now it's the Adah that's going to move into the promised land. Okay. So other than Moses, who has to lead them through Transjordan and those battles that are going to happen in Transjordan. And Aaron. Aaron's about to die. Uh, so that for, so as far as the people, 
Kol Ha'eda is here. So, um, How far along are they on? Mm-hmm. Into this track? So all of a sudden, we're at year 38. And now they're talking about water? Ha 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 ha. Good. So they, they come to Midbar And what happens there? Vatamat sham Miryam vetika versham. Miryam dies and is buried there. That is all that is said about Miryam. There's a lot of rabbinic musing about why there's no more about Miriam's death. Some rabbis say this is actually the sin that that gets Moses in trouble is this, that he didn't eulogize Miriam longer or better. Um, so, and that, that, that the rock story is a cover story. So, um, Why didn't he? Did I miss it? No, we didn't miss it. We, we have no indication of anything about what the customs were even to he doesn't mourn. eulogize. We don't get told he mourns. We don't get told anything right now. Like, like right here. Um, We've just heard about the ritual law of what you do after someone dies. So connect. So we might can connect the fact that we're going to have a corpse on our hands with the stuff that came before about corpse contamination. But the the big connection is the connection that goes forward to your point. Here's the great big connection that we all take for granted. So you're going to go, well, of course, but this is the moment of the great big connection that we all assume. What is it? Miriam dies and was buried there. And there was no water for the people. The rabbis connect those two things. This is how we get Miriam's well. Right here. So we take that all for granted. The association with Miriam with water and healing and blah, 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 blah. Mm-mm. It's, it's right here. It's because these two sentences are next to each other in the Torah. She, she dies and she's buried and the people complain there's no water. Why is there no water? Because Miriam died. Because she, she was She was water. the source of water. She was the one who would call, because we get in another place in Torah, that Miriam called and they answered. Usually we read the people answered. She called, they answered, or the women answered, right? She called, they answered, and the rabbi said, you shouldn't think it's the people, God forbid. It's the waters answered, right? It's plural in Hebrew. The waters answered. Miriam would call, and the waters answered. That's proof that this connection is valid and legit, that Miriam died, there was no water. It's because Miriam would call and the waters would respond, meaning they would come into a well. And so when she dies, now they have no water. Okay? But that's a huge... <laughs> so the rabbis, see the little space in your book between the word sham at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2? It's the same space as between every other verse. The rabbis read a ton of midrash into that little space. Right? All of this stuff about Miriam and water goes right into this tiny little space between verse 1 and verse 2. That's why we love this tradition. Where does it talk about Miriam's well in the Torah? It doesn't. There is no Miriam's well in the Torah. There is Miriam calls and the rabbis read the waters respond. And they read here that because she dies and then there's no water that Miriam must be connected to water in the desert and the only way you get water in the desert is a well so where is Miriam calls and, and the water where I have to, I'll find the citation for you um, you can google it but um, but I'll, I'll try to find the citation um, so Miriam is the first dowser hmm? Miriam is the first dowser 
Yes. Yes. Right. And but even more miraculous than that, because it seems that it's not dependent necessarily on finding where the water. Right. Right. There's a there's an element of almost the miraculous, like wherever she would call, the waters would like come. But yes, that she's able to somehow get it that there's how there's water, where there's water, making water, uh, which of course in a desert community is we've talked about this a lot. It's life. Water is life. So. Um, so that's the connection between Miriam and water. Now the people don't have water, and when our people don't have something that they perceive they need, what do they do? Kvetch. Beyond kvetch, what do they do? Rebel. They rebel. They turn on their leaders. Right? It's very Jewish. When they don't have something they need, the Jews turn on their leaders. And they say, if only we had perished with our brothers. At the instance of Adonai, right? There's been a lot of death, right? Um, if only that had happened to us. Why have you brought God's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Did, were they in Egypt? No. It was, no. no. It was, the children. <laughs> to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, there is not even water to drink. So if, if these are the folks that are going to go into Canaan, and supposedly they spent the 40 years, so the slavery mentality was abolished. There's still a bunch of whiners. So, so there's two ways, as always, to read the story. Either we can read, really, they were never slaves. They never had that mentality. That's their parents, but they've heard it, yeah. right? They've, they've, there's a cadence to Jewish whining that we all inherit just because we're around it, right? We, we know how it sounds. We know how to fetch, right? Please, I'll sit in the dark. Go, you'll have fun. You should, you know. You know. So it's, we know, we know the cadence of fetch because that's what we've heard all our lives. And so some people want to forgive them. Like that, that's what they've heard. And they're talking about a place. We, why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? Some people want to use that as forgiveness for them because they're not talking about Egypt with that sentence. Because what happened last week or the week before? Shlach Lecha. What happened in that parsha? When they came back with all of the stuff. This generation saw the fruit that the scouts came back with. They saw pomegranates and vines. And what they're saying is, why ha- we have no water here. Why haven't you taken us in? So people who want to read this kindly, right, to the people, say they're just used to hearing whining. That's what they know how to do. Um, and... They're not talking really about Egypt. They're talking about, we want to go there. Why haven't you taken us in there yet? And so in that way, at least they're looking forward, right? They're, they're, they're wanting Moses to get them there already, which you could understand after 40 years in the desert. Can we get there already? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, so Moshe and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. So the people round on Moshe and Aaron. What do Moshe and Aaron do? What are they doing when they do this? Essentially. Well, they're, they're humbling themselves. Yeah. They're saying, God, do something. <laughs> they're humbling themselves to God. They're, they run to God. Right? So the people turn on them. They don't have any water. Right? So they what do they do? They go to God. And if you're going to approach God, the first thing you have to do is humble yourself. If you're about to ask God for something, you'd no, better... He also 
He also did that to Cora. He fell on his face. And as we were discussing last Saturday, it's sort of a way of saying, sometimes you humble yourself. It's sort of like a martial artist will stand back and let the attack happen because they know that's their greatest strength. So, okay, you've attacked me. I humble myself before you. Now, bring your fire pants tomorrow morning. We'll see what happens. Right. And so in this case, it seems like perhaps they really are just humbling themselves before God. Although it's something to think about. Could they be humbling themselves before the people who are attacking them? They've left the people. They come away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And that's where Moshe speaks with God. So presumably they are requesting an audience. They are asking for God to show up, which God does. Right? Kavod Adonai shows up. The kavod, the presence of God shows up, and God speaks to Moshe and says, you and your brother Aaron take the rod. What rod? The snake. The one that turned into a snake. And assemble the community, and before their eyes order the rock to yield its water. Thus you shall produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Okay. Um, why don't you finish out that paragraph? <clears throat> Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, he being Moses, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water for, for you out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the, wise, the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and their beasts drank. Go on. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the land that I have given them. Those are the waters of Meribah, meaning that the Israelites quarreled with the Lord through which he affirms his sanctity. All right. If anyone tells you they understand this, they're wrong. <laughs> we, there are a million interpretations of this because it is so enigmatic. Like we, we, we do not know exactly what this means. It doesn't mean we're not going to spend the next half hour talking about it, George. Um, but, <laughs> but we don't know what this tangled Hebrew you know, and, and the concept means, but, but we're going to unpack it because, of course, we're Jews. There's generations of lots of thought and writing about what this means and what we take from it right, as, a, as a story for looking into our own behavior in our own times. All right. You and your brother, God says, will take the staff, will take the rod. We've had, an, we have another rock water incident before this. In that case, the people are complaining they don't have water. God says to Moshe, strike the rock and it will bring forth water. Okay? Moshe strikes the rock, it bring forth, brings forth water, we're done. God did not say strike the rock. This In time. this case, God did not say strike the rock. God says, take your staff. What is Moshe supposed to think? Having done this once before, the people who want to forgive Moshe say, he was just told to take his staff. The people are complaining about water. Like, what does Moshe think? Wait, Moshe's thinking, I know, what to, I know what's coming. I know what to do with this. Well, 
I think it may be what he says. If, if, hang on, if, hang on, we're not there yet. Okay. We're going there. We're not there yet. So anyone who wants to figure out what's going on and why Moshe gets punished and what it means that God is sanctified or not sanctified and you did or you didn't or you trusted or you didn't, it's not clear. No one is clear. There are lots of possibilities. One possibility has to do with the staff. His mateh, his rod. The staff was used in Egypt as a sign, right, of miracles and of power. It's how is it used with a slave? You you beat them. The staff is a sign of power and a sign of authority. So some who want to forgive Moshe about the staff say, but he's taken the staff to hit the rock before to get water and everything was fine. He, this is a pattern he knows. Um, what else was he supposed to do with the staff? So that, that he's already used the staff to get water. The, the people who want to condemn Moshe do so on the basis of the staff. You, your staff was to be used hitting the rock when you were dealing with slaves from Egypt, who that's all they understood. You're dealing with another generation now. And that is why Dafka, God says, take the staff, but use your mouth. And that that's the big issue, is that Moshe takes the staff and completely undermines what God is trying to communicate to the people by using the staff to hit or to beat the rock. Moshe has now completely undone what God wanted to have happen which was that the people complain and God is going to slake their thirst. And so rather than presenting God as a loving, protective, nurturing force that will feed them, what does he do? He takes the staff, that sign of authority, and whacks the rock and now completely undermines the message that God wanted to to convey. When you take the staff... who? What what job is associated with the staff? Uh, if, you're, if we're not talking about Egypt, shepherd. Moshe's mm-hmm. job, right, was before he became Moshe, the prophet was he was a shepherd. The shepherd's staff. This, that staff is a sign of protection. That staff is to beat up coyotes where I live, right? Um, right, you. You protect your animals with that staff, right? And we have the image of God holding God's staff. And each one of us at the high holidays goes under that staff to be counted, right? That we matter. Each one of us matters. The the shepherd's staff is supposed to be something loving. And the word here that God uses, you're going to do blah, 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 and provide drink for the congregation, that Hebrew word is is used when you... um, Water animals. What is that called? Is there a word for that in English? Caretaking. Caretaking. Slaking their thirst, but it's a technical term for you providing water for something that can't provide it for itself. Right? There isn't a word in English the way there is in Hebrew for that. Mm-hmm. So, so what God is saying is you're, you're just providing what I'm going to slake their thirst. You're supposed to act as the shepherd. Here and instead uses the staff wrongly. All right. Now this comes. This comes right after the hukat. Mm-hmm. Explanation of hukat. Is there any sense that 
Moses should have obeyed it even if he didn't think it made sense? 100%. 100%. So one is the staff. The other area of difficulty is speech. So Moshe, Moshe is supposed to speak to the rock. So that doesn't happen, right? He hits instead of speaks. That's one place. Another place is what does he say to them when he's going to slake their thirst? Listen, you rebels. Shall we get water for you out of this rock? So here we have two more problems, possibly, if, we, if we're looking for evidence of why God condemns Moshe. One is that he calls them names. If he's supposed to be the shepherd, if he's supposed to be the one who's the representative of a loving God who's now going to provide for God's people, and he gets up and starts calling them names. So he's angry and essentially he's mean to them. And then says, shall we get water from you from this rock? That he takes credit. It, not necessarily on purpose, but that what he says seems to imply, shall we, meaning me and Aaron, get water from you from this rock, now can be seen as discrediting God. That's, that's the point I was going to make. She's taking credit. And this is a pattern, though, that's starting. Because when... Um, and this is something that Rabbi Nick was discussing with us. When he first took the, the mantle of leadership, he was very unwilling and very humble with it. If you look at, at what happened in Korah, it wasn't God who decided on bring fire pans out or you're going to be swallowed by earth. This is, this is something that Moses said to them. Moses decided how God will decide and says something to them. And here he is doing the same thing. All God said was to command. And that's something I, I would I was curious about the whatever the Hebrew word was for command the rock because if, if, if the word used only meant speech, then you know that Moses definitely disobeyed. But the point still remains He's adding all this in. He's calling them rebels. He's, shall we bring it? He's taking credit. Suddenly, Moses is getting a little big for his bridges. Okay, so one, re- one way to read it is Moses has let power go to his head. I would love to have a conversation on tape with Rabbi Nick because I would completely disagree. Um, that would be a great conversation. I believe this is Moshe at Moshe's absolute fundamental. He he get he, he when he beat the taskmaster, it came out of this. He he sometimes reacts out of anger. It's always been his flaw. It's always been his character struggle. And here he just he's lost his patience. We see him so patient with the people all along. He keeps intervening for them. He keeps saying to God, No, don't destroy them. Don't hurt. Them. And he's had it. He's tired. He's had it. And when Moshe's had it, he loses his temper. <coughs> Apologize for the analogy, but in soccer, when uh, somebody commits repeated fouls, uh, they wind up getting a yellow card just because there's a pattern of um, rather than one specific thing. 
And I've always considered this and the idea that Moses doesn't go into Canaan um, as a buildup of a number of um, slip-ups that he has had in, for all that time. He's still the last of the individuals who understands the slavery issue of the old guard. And I think that basically this, people have tried to basically say, because you have struck the rock, you're not going in. And I've never quite seen it that way and have seen it because there's been X and Y and Z and A and B. And now this is the straw that broke the camel's back. But it, in and of itself, it is necessary but not sufficient to have created um, uh, that sort of uh, judgment. So one of the ways to talk about it is, right, is this a punishment for something Moshe has done, right? What I hear you saying is it's a culmination and God reaches a decision at this point to say because of a pattern of and who you are and where you come from, it's we're, it's time well, for more, someone else. More yeah. over, he may not be an ideal leader for going in the So for sure. For sure. We're all for sure. So so part of the conversation becomes why not? Right? So part of it is okay. We just need new leaders for new generations. We've had that conversation in here. Um, that it's, it's absolutely clear Joshua is going to be the, the, the candidate we need. But it's you know it's always interesting to look at. So why why can't Moshe take them in right? Like why right? And so it's interesting because he's familiar with the slave mentality. But Moshe was not a slave, and Moshe was of the noble. He was raised in the halls of power, and it. So one interpretation is that the people who were slaves needed someone who grew up among the enemy and in the halls of power because he was the one who would have the confidence and the, you know, the, the charisma and the ability to have them believe right, that they could be something else. But now, and this is why I, like to, I don't like the idea that Moshe is punished. Um, I do... I do resonate with the idea that that God gets it at this point that for real, for real, Moshe can't even go with it. Like he, it just he needs to be here and end here, and Yoshua needs to be the next leader because Moshe was not a slave, and the, these people were not slaves. They don't need the same kind of qualifications in a leader that the generation that were slaves needed. That this is a new group. This is the first really big incident we have with Moshe leading a new group and how he deals with the new group. And God is watching the interaction between the group that wasn't slaves and the guy raised by Egyptians and says, uh-oh, right? This did not go well. This is, this is not working. They need somebody who's one of them. They will need Joshua, who was one of them, to bring them into who understood the slaves, who understood that mentality, because he was part of that generation, and he he's going to lead them. And it breaks. God sees the breakdown here, and it. And as I said, it's for me. It's more than Moshe doesn't do what God said. It's worse than that, way worse than that. In terms of its failure, 
I'm not saying, I'm not talking about what Moshe did wrong, like how bad it was, and therefore he should be punished. I'm, I just want to leave that whole paradigm. If we're looking at what God learns in this situation, I think that the, it's worse, it's worse than we think, right? That, that God is suggesting you were supposed to be the loving shepherd representing me. You're my representative. I want this generation to see me. I'm going to slake their thirst. I'm going to take care of them. They're about to go to war. They have to believe I'm on their side. I will protect them. I will provide for them. I will make the land fertile when they get there. I'll feed them. I'll take care of them. This is your opportunity to show them that. As a loving shepherd with your staff. And you're going to raise the, the, the symbol of authority and you are not going to use it. You are going to speak. You're going to use speech. And you will teach the people that their speech is powerful. That, that speech, that words are how we move forward, not hitting. You're going to change the model. You're going to change the paradigm when you speak. They will now get it. There's another way to be effective and miraculous and have things happen in this world and it's through speaking and instead you got up you called them names you grab your staff and you hit the rock you completely screwed up my chance to shine you didn't sanctify me it, right that you you screwed it up well that's, that's interesting because it is a different view and and in a way, it's a different God speaking because it was, you know, we've seen him a couple of times be held back from wiping out the people <laughs> Right. So now he's changed too, or he, I shouldn't say he, I'm anthropomorphizing it. Right. But whoever wrote it appears to, uh, this is all true, have, have changed the perspective that God is. But think about it, even if we go to that God. Who did God want to wipe out all those times? The people who uh, didn't deserve to, to go into the promised land because they were saying things about Egypt that really weren't true. So that's, one, that's, one could understand that God to say, y'all are going to die in this desert. Your offspring will go into the land. This is God's opportunity to start over. Starting over. To hit reset, I'm willing. I didn't destroy y'all. I just—I mean, I—I I let you just get destroyed over 40 years because I was done with you. And now God is addressing the group that God, like, w- said, is going to go into the promised land. This is God's first opportunity to have an interaction with those people, and this is what—this is the result. If Nick were here last week, was really fascinating because he brought Carl Young into the room. Just about at this point, and it's sort of the implication was that God wakes up and says, "You know, Moses, you're really a very passive-aggressive guy. Okay, you're humble, but when you you don't know how to really lead. So when you're challenged, you get very reactionary. And now, apparently, God has had it." I would I would argue against that interpretation if he were here if if Nick were here I would love to have this conversation because I would argue on the other side I would argue for Moshe 
and say he's been a great leader for these people. He's got his flaws, for sure. But he's been a great leader. And I don't think this is saying, you've gotten too big for your britches, you're done. I think it's saying, you don't understand this generation. They, I need something else. You weren't able to do that. Your usual flaw of your temper got in the way, in a way that really screwed it up. They need somebody else. I've known that for a while. You may not be that and, far apart. You know, it's very possible that Moses was a great leader for the people at the time. The, in the absolutely. God's now looking at this saying, you know, it took a certain skill set. Yep. You had it. It's going to take another skill set That's right. right now. But temperamentally, in that new skill, you're just not the guy. Because Joshua knows that he's not worried by the mob, by the giants. And everybody else looked and said, we're grasshoppers. And that's the leader we need now, not the shepherd. Mm-hmm. We need the guy that's not afraid of the giants. Steve? Um, didn't God set him up for failure? I mean, he told him to bring the staff with him. He knows he's a shepherd. He knows that for his his interpretation of the staff is not bad, but it's to hurt people, it's to be kind with it. So he does what he's supposed to do, which is hit the rock with the staff, which is what he knows. So there, definitely there are some folks who want to defend Moshe saying it's God who messed up in terms of not being super clear right. about take the staff but don't use it. Right. right. Um, and, and that Moshe, but there's a lovely commentator going to that Jungian or whatever kind of uh, interpretation that, that is interesting that says, um, but isn't this where we all get stuck is when we act out of familiar patterns even though the new situation requires something different? That, yeah, he took the staff and we all know what we've done with staffs in the past and Moshe gets tripped up because he does what we all do, which is go to patterns of behavior and isn't able to step out of that pattern and use the staff well, differently. Well, that's a that's then <laughs> doubting that God knows what God is doing, which is a whole other conversation. But God doesn't say hit the rock. God says speak to the rock, right? And so, I mean, this is. But does the Hebrew words I don't speak? think it's... Let me see. <laughs> Commanded him. Where? You and your brother... <laughs> you and your brother take their assembly before the very order the el hasela, And you will speak to the rock. Okay, that's what so I needed to you, know is what the Hebrew Yeah, dibartem, you will talk, you will, you will speak, you will use your dvarim, your words. In all of our experiences, transition from leadership is always challenging. So you, you have a leader for over 40 years who is beloved and everybody looks to and knows that this person is not going to be with us forever. And how are we going to make that transition to a new leader? And it change is difficult. So possibly this is God's way of setting up for the people to see that it's time for a new leader and that we can trust this new leader. 100%. I think it's an important analogy to what we've gone through for the past nine months. Yeah? <laughs> and that is the leader who might have been effective in 2008 or 2012 clearly was not the leader so the leader who was effective who, who could have been 
Hillary could. Hillary got it. So she was effective in certain ways. She was clearly not effective to lead the current children of Israel, i.e., the millennials, which is why the Democratic Party is so fragile. I guess my point is that it is continuing to change. Oh, there's a lot of blood in his sweat. There's what? He likes to drink blood all the time. And if we're going to go to temperament. I guess my point is that the lesson here is that leadership going backwards for X period of time is not necessarily leadership that can go forward X period of time, particularly with a new generation. Right. And it's something that, in addition to understanding Torah, it's something that we can bring to, and I wish that the Democratic Party were paying more attention to it. To this lesson? To this lesson. I think this is a lesson that resonates today. I'm fascinated by Moses' reaction right after this point, because what Moses doesn't do and what Moses does do, I think, reflects on what actually happened. The first thing that Moses doesn't do is argue with God. Moses does not get discouraged and just say, well, I'm not going to the promised land. Somebody else take him in. He turns around. We haven't gotten. He turns around and says, okay, let's move forward. And then we end up with the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is basically Moses speaking and speaking on behalf of God. So in some ways, Moses seems to have understood. I'm defending Moses. Moses seems to have understood. There's nothing here. There's nothing in the Torah that says that, because what Moses does after this is really to say, okay, and he does all of these big speeches about here's what you need to do in your promised land. He doesn't denigrate God. He doesn't say, you know, you all are going, but I'm not going. And so have a nice time, which he could have done, or he could have turned it over to Joshua at that point. So on the one hand, he was changing by clearly not being able to still be the leader. But I think he grew from, at least that's how I'm reading it, he grew from this experience. Because what he actually does after this is accept what God said and make a positive out of it. But really, you could also look at this that God just took a huge rock off of Moses' shoulders. They're straight now. Moses isn't the guy. You don't have the responsibility. No, he doesn't have the responsibility to go there. All I want you to do is be a great shepherd and help. And Moses says, free at last. Well, first of all, Moshe's not free yet. Moshe's not in any way free yet. And it's an interesting thing that he's told to speak to the rock and doesn't. And there's, I just was at a board of rabbis, a Hartman Institute presentation, and I wish I could remember our teacher's name. But he said that the book of Devarim is a tikkun for this moment. The book of Devarim, the book of words, the whole book of Deuteronomy that is Moshe's goodbye address is a tikkun for the fact that Moshe's told to speak and doesn't speak. And that it's a repair of the fact that Moshe has this moment of failure, if you will, in speech. Just in terms of the 
terms of narrative, please remind me, Moses is the one that had the list. That is Midrash. We don't, there's no indication that there's anything wrong with his mouth. What he says of himself is that, it doesn't say stutter. He says he's a man who has, you know, issues with speech, but. I'm just saying in terms of narrative through these books, because I'm not following every, as knowledgeable as to what comes where. It's very interesting that this particular lesson, whether it's for leadership, whether it's the importance of remembering the word of God, comes through Moses because there seems to be in the narrative some weave of his capacity to speak clearly. Yes. Yes. And so it's going to come to the point where he then does his big speech. It would come through him. It's not coming through Abraham or any of the others. It's speech and the word. The importance, whether you're in a community or whether you're in, you know, direct communication would come through the Moses story. And our teacher said also that the Devarim is also a tikkun, right, for Moshe's self-perception, right? We're not told there's anything wrong with how Moses talks, and then we get Devarim. So obviously Moshe does not have a problem speaking, right? And that, so both this failure and Moshe's self-perception that he's not a good speaker, he doesn't speak clearly, is that, you know, then we have Devarim, which is, of course it's got to come through Moshe, who, slow of speech, thinks he can't speak, has a failure in speech, then of course that huge, amazing speech has to come through Moshe. And if you didn't have the capacity for the right word, or you're not listening clearly or whatever, you might act out emotionally. Yes. Yes. When you don't know what to say, right? We lash out. If we don't speak and we don't talk about it, right, we lash out in other ways. All right. For me, I sometimes read this God as being a little sad. Right? Like if... A little sad. The God... I think God and Moshe have had a really intimate relationship. And even though God knows it's time, not yet, not soon, he's not off the hook yet, Moshe still has a lot of work to do. He he knows and he's told Moshe, right, you know, that you're not the one to lead this generation into what's going to happen next. But it doesn't say anywhere that, that God doesn't love Moshe. Right? You know, they've had a very tempestuous marriage, God and Moshe, if I can be so sacrilegious. They've been incredibly intimate and incredibly close and have come through a lot together. And even when one knows it's time for someone to retire, it doesn't mean one respects that person any less, right? And there's even, I think, sometimes real sadness at that this person's time is over. I heard a great orator, a great rabbi, um, who I won't name, speak. And and he was old and frail. And his speech was, eh, right? And, and I, it was so sad to me. And it's not that I respected him any less. It was just, it was a tender, respectful kind of sadness that he'd come to this place of being so old and frail that he now got up to speak and, and it didn't happen anymore. And and not that I respected his teaching any less, but it, I, I have this image that just because someone's, you know someone's time is over and done, it doesn't mean that, that the affection or the respect is any less. And I, I 
this year anyway. Um, see, God is in a real. I feel I feel bad for both God and Moshe, right? That Moshe's you had this moment and and God feels really disappointed and gets it that it's time for a new leader. And I don't think it means anything about God not feeling feeling. You know, but I don't think it has to be a punishing, wrathful God that that makes this decision. It can be a regretful, loving God that says, okay, like I guess I can't, I can't be in denial anymore that it's time. Isn't the best defense of Moses, given this relationship, that he doesn't resign his job and walk out? Yes, that's what Bert was saying. Yeah, yeah Bert says he, he's still the leader. He's, he's a great leader. I'm no longer going to be the president of the company. That's okay. I'm, I'm yep. Pass the leadership up. I'll do until it's time for him and to he, step up. And he gets very energetic. Yeah. He gets energetic about it. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he, it also opens him up. You know, that's what I meant by free and last. He can do all of this. But isn't it enough that he talks to God? I mean, how many people talk to God? I mean, like, what do you mean, isn't it enough? What does that mean? When you're looking at the pro- what is there a handful of people that have been accepted to have talked to God. Moses is one of them. I mean, as a follower, I would be sort of impressed with just that fact alone. Yeah. The Israelites are not so impressed, right, <laughs> with that fact alone, right? Which which says something about the Israelites, right? That that they are not so impressed. Just fetch. Um, right? That they that they fetch and that they that they constantly doubt and question and undermine. Um Big deal, you talk to God. And, right. And I think um, to to the point of Moshe's leadership the, the fact that, and to your point, that the fact that we get the book of Deuteronomy next, that's an indication of Moshe's capacity, right, to grow even at the end. That this man who starts his story, you know, reluctant to speak, closes his leadership after he's told he's done, essentially, he's going to be removed. He finishes his leadership with this incredible speech to the people of hope. And of a charge of his vision, of what he wants them to build, of what he believes they're capable of doing once they get to the promised land. He spent so much time, like, you know, like dealing with this kvetchy group, like, you know, and, and, and yet he ends his career with this huge speech about how he knows they can build an, a society of equity and justice and goodness and compassion and fairness. And here's the ways that that needs to manifest when you get there. Constantly, when you get to the land, when you get to the land, when you get to the land. That he's able to see, even at this time in his life, the possibilities, that he's able to articulate a vision that he feels is inspired, right? He feels it's, it's God's words, obviously, but it has to come through... Um, but it, these words, I believe, have to come through Moshe, Davka. And that Moshe's ready to set aside once again his own agenda, his ego, his, his part in it, and really leave the people with a sense that they can do it. Whatever is coming, they can do it, and it's going to be glorious, is the sign of a brilliant leader and teacher. It's why he's Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher. We don't call him Moshe the prophet. We never call him Moshe Hanavi. Never. We call him Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe, our teacher, our Rav, our rabbi. Because he, he had that capacity even at the end, even after being fired, right? He had the capacity to inspire um, this next generation to go in and do what needed to be done. We see Joshua charged at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, but we never see Joshua as leader, right? Not until the, you know, that chunk of our history. Um, 
We don't we don't see Joshua in the Torah. Is Moshe dies? I mean, when the when our book closes, Moshe's still our leader. Yes, he's he's invested Joshua, but Joshua hasn't done anything, right? That we we close the book and it's Moshe, who's still our leader. And so I um, I feel both for Moshe and God in this in this story and in this parsha um, and through the rest of the end because we know what the end is. Um, it's interesting that the rabbis have a huge amount of literature where Moses begs God not to kill him and gives all these reasons. At this point? At this point. That you're, or maybe it's when God says it's time to go you know, to the mountain. Um, and that um, Moshe pleads right with God. And so it's very interesting that the rabbis need to, or not need to, but they feel this, like, wait, what? That, this, this can't be how it goes, right? And so they fill in all of these blanks, of, and, and it's heart-wrenching, Moshe talking to God about, please don't kill me, right? It's heart-wrenching. But, but with Torah, it's, it's clear that we're left with a strong, dynamic um, Moshe who visions the future he knows he's not going to live it he knows he's not the one to do it um, but he lays out the vision he lays out the goals he lays out um, the underpinnings of the entire society that uh, that they are to build with all of his flaws and all of his crazy and all of his trauma that he comes from um, Aviva Zorenberg talks about the fact that he from the beginning is is unrooted he's out of place she talks about um, the the infant nursing right and that he's 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 the moment he and there's a midrash that that Batya looks for all of these Egyptian women to nurse him and she tries all these Egyptian nursemaids uh, to nurse him and it doesn't work. Moshe won't take the breast from any of these Egyptian women and so finally she's like, okay, fine, go get a Hebrew slave, right? And that's when um, they get Yochaved to to nurse Moshe and and the midrash seems to be suggesting that. Moshe's just kind of disconnected and out of place from infancy. He's put in a basket. He's sent down the river, right? You know, he's displaced. And, and then he's brought to the bosom of an Egyptian woman who doesn't smell right, who doesn't feel right. And then it's his mother and he nurses. And then he's taken away from her and raised. by Like he just, he, he's never, he's always um, existentially as an adoptee, I get it. Um, he's out of sorts existentially always. He's out of place always. There's something off for him. The universe isn't the secure, regular, normal experience that most people have. And, and that I think Moshe struggles with that forever. Moshe, and is triggered, right? When he's triggered, he gets triggered by, um, by things that touch off that, that, that existential conflict that, that he experiences, and, and this is one of those places. But isn't that what leadership's Yes, yes. I mean, in the last analysis, yes. anybody who is a Absolutely, and and in that sense, this is where I would close my defense, <laughs> my rest my case um, of Moshe is that with all of how complicated his personality is, and all of the many ways he gets touched off and triggered, he's put up with so much, um, and and that he closes it still ready to be the visionary and ready to impart the best of what he has left to the people. Right? He, he makes none of it about, okay, Tsipora and I are now going to take a much-needed vacation. Right? Mm-hmm. right? He, it's never about him. He, to the last, he gives the last bit of energy he has right before he's going to die. He gives it to the people for them to build on and build something that we're still talking about 
<laughs> right? We are still talking about how to build that society and how to build our society in the shadow of the values. Well, my shadow is the wrong word, but in the light of the values um, that are put forth in the book of Tvarim. Uh, may it be many, many, many more generations of we Israelites who uh, wrestle and struggle to build a society representative of Torah values. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.